Zechariah chapter 9, verses 8 to 10, and we'll begin at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress, and piled up silver like dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth, and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. We have in this chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, God's word against the northern enemies of Israel, and then the western enemies of Israel, going from north to south along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That's what we found in verses 1 to 6. And then in verse 7, God spoke of a remnant, that though he will destroy the nations, he will save for himself a remnant among them. And this remnant, it says in verse 7, then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Because even in the time of Joshua, He did not kill, Joshua did not kill all of them, and some of them even became believers. Like we saw in 2 Samuel 24, which is also in 1 Chronicles 21, um, how there was this Arana the Jebusite, Arana the Jebusite, who was favorable to King David and helped (coughs) David to worship the Lord in order to avert the plague, to end the plague that God brought on the nation. Well, just like there were remnants among the people of God, remnants of believers among the nations, among the people of God or the people of Judah, this is the way God works throughout all history, bringing people from different nations into one body in Christ. Then, He turns his attention in verses 8 to 10 to talk about how exactly he accomplishes this. How exactly does he accomplish producing a remnant of true believers in the Lord? And in verse 8, because God intercedes, God intervenes in order to protect his people from the enemies. That's in verse 8. And then in verse 9, The one, the king, the Christ, who is the ground or the basis of God's protection and deliverance in salvation against the enemies. Verse 9 is Christ. And then in verse 10, the supreme and worldwide dominion of Christ and how he accomplishes this throughout the world. That's in verse 10. Verse 7 that God saves a remnant. Now verse 8, that he himself will intervene to produce this. God will. 
So, verse 8. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. I will camp around my house. God is saying that he is acting like the king of kings and a valiant warrior to protect his own house. God is acting in that way. In chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. A wall of fire around her and the glory in her midst. (coughs) And also, verse 8, verses 8 and 9. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. This is God promising that he will deliver them. He will be a wall of fire around them and their protection. He here calls them my house. God calls them my house. He doesn't mean the temple of the Lord, which is also his house. And he doesn't mean the the nation or the land, because we're talking about spiritual things. He's not talking about the nation or the land, though the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, did belong to the Lord. When he says my house, he means his household, his people, his true people. This would be as Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Numbers 12, 6 to 8. He said, God said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. And the Hebrew word for house or household is the same word. And it depends on the context. So, he is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Hebrews 3.5, alluding to this, Hebrews 3.5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house or household as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Hebrews 3, 5. And it is in this way that God says that He will camp around us. Camp around us. Because of an army. Because of an army. That army is described further as because of Him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. Army oppressor these are allusions to the people's oppression in the land of Egypt these are allusions to that but in reference to spiritual things first the allusion exodus chapter 2 exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 Exodus chapter 2, 23 to 25. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. They were in bondage. They cried out to the Lord. They were groaning, and God remembered them. God took notice of them. God saw what was going on, which is also what we will see when he says, I have seen with my eyes. Well, also in chapter 3, Exodus 3, verse 7, when the Lord speaks to Moses, he says, verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. And also verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. In the same way, God sees our spiritual oppression and he protects us from our enemies. He sees how we are oppressed by sin and delivers us from our sin, just like he did at the Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Our sin makes us slaves, as it says in Romans 6. Romans 6, 17. And 18. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were, slint, uh, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And as well, we have spiritual worldly and satanic oppression. How so? Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And further, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. All the way to 20 is the armor of God, but 10 to 12 speaks of Satan. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan and his demons are working against us. But God will not allow him in our life to pass by and return. And He will not allow the oppressor to pass over us anymore. He conquers the devil in our life. He thwarts him, He conquers him. Just as the Lord said in Zechariah 3, verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, Zechariah 3, 2, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem 
rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord rebukes Satan, the oppressor, so that he is conquered in our life. Satan will not overwhelm us and conquer us after God has declared that he will protect us and not allow the oppressor to pass over anymore. Why so? For now, Zechariah 9.8, For now I have seen with my eyes. When he says, For now I have seen with my eyes, he is speaking in human terms. He's speaking in human language. He's speaking in terms that we can understand. Remember we read in Exodus 2, 23-25 that God saw the sons of Israel and He took notice of them. And it also said God remembered them. He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, God didn't forget, but remember means God is ready to take action. And God saw doesn't mean His eyes were closed or He was sleeping or He was blind or he was paying attention to the other side of the world for a while, while allowing his people to suffer. That's not what it means. It means he is acquainted, intimately acquainted, and he's about to act on what he sees. And the same thing here. For now I have seen with my eyes means God is ready to act. Zechariah 4. 10 says, These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Zechariah 4.10 or 2 Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. 2 Chronicles 16.9 God is noticing, God sees, God is fully aware of everything that's going on. This He repeats for us, for our assurance, that God keeps track, God is mindful, God is concerned, He takes care of us, and He knows every single thing that is going on. In fact, as it says in Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verses 1, 1 to 6. Psalm 139, 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. This is how knowledgeable God is. God's eyes signifying His omniscience, His omniscient knowledge of us. We might also read 139, 17, and 18. 139, 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That's the loving concern of God. Well, God intervenes in verse 8. But who exactly is God's mediator to intervene? Who exactly is God's redeemer? Verse 9 explains. Verse 9, Zechariah 9.9. It's an easy verse to remember in terms of a messianic or Christological Old Testament verse. Zechariah 9.9. This verse both liberal and conservative alike, both Jewish and Christian commentators alike, almost universally throughout history, 
liberal or conservative, Jewish or Christian, they say Zechariah 9.9 is messianic. They say it's messianic, it's Christological. It is Zechariah the prophet, hundreds of years before, 500 years before the coming of Christ, predicting the coming of Christ. Now, the conservative ones believe this was predicted and fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. The liberal ones say this is messianic, but not fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. That's the difference. They all agree, or most of them, 99% of them agree, it's messianic. But the conservative ones believe it was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, in the New Testament. And that would be Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15. The first one, Matthew 21 and verse 5. Let's read verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. This is when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the final week of his life before he was crucified. 21, 4. Matthew 21, 4 to 7. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. Another, a parallel, is in John 12, 15. John 12:15, And we'll read verses 12 to 16. John 12, 12 to 16. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. After Christ was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him. In the moment, they weren't mindful of it. But when Christ was glorified, they remembered that this was written in Zechariah, the prophet. So then, this is definitely messianic. It's not the only Messianic verse in Zechariah. We've already seen Zechariah 6, 12 to 13, the branch. Zechariah 6, 12 to 13, the branch. In Zechariah 12, 10, Zechariah 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That is Zechariah 12.10, fulfilled in John 19.37. John 19.37. These are a few of those in Zechariah. One more is Zechariah 13.7. Zechariah 13.7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Who is this my shepherd, the shepherd 
who is to be struck? My associate, the man. Who is this? According to Matthew 26.31, Matthew 26.31 and Mark 14.27, it's Christ. A few of the other messianic passages in Zechariah. Okay, having confirmed that this is indeed messianic and a prediction of the of the triumphal entry of Christ on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now let's return. It calls on us to rejoice greatly, shout in triumph. Rejoice greatly and shout in triumph. Why so? Because we are being Vindicated because we are being redeemed, because the mediator is coming in order to die on the cross for our sins. That's why the church is told to rejoice when it's speaking of redemption. Rejoice when redemption is considered. Rejoice in gratitude. Rejoice in abundant thankfulness to what God has done. Zephaniah told us to do the same. Zephaniah 3, 14. 3, 14 to 20. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. It is for this reason the Lord intervenes, the Lord intercedes, and it is Christ who dies for us, and this is the reason we rejoice. He comes into the world to pay the penalty for our sins. We see this same rejoicing in Revelation Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and verse 12. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And in 12 saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And also, verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. We rejoice 
because our redemption is in Christ. We know He comes to redeem and deliver us from our sins. We might also ask, why does the Scripture, why does the Scripture call us the daughter of Zion? Daughter of Zion or daughter of Jerusalem? In what sense is it calling us this? It's calling us this because it's speaking of us in terms of us being tender and delicate. Tender and delicate. Redeemed people in this sense. Why so? How so? Look at um, Isaiah 62. Isaiah 62. Why does God call us the daughter of Zion? Isaiah 62, 1 to 5. 62, 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. And the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You also will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken, nor to your land will it, be, will it any longer be said desolate. But you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. These are names. My delight in, is in her and married. Why? For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the groom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. This is also why in Revelation 19, 7-10, the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs. Because Christ is the one who is our groom, our head, our husband, and he marries us, and ultimately that marriage will take place. Right now, we are espoused to him, we are engaged. 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4 says, he has espoused us or um, engaged us to one husband, that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. So as a young woman is delicate and pure as a virgin, in that same way, God looks at us. And that's why he calls us the daughter of Zion. Your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming to you. A king coming. In... Genesis 17:6 God promised to Abraham that kings would come forth from him. In Genesis 17:16 God said the same to Sarah. <coughs> kings of peoples would come forth from her. Kings would come forth from Abraham, Genesis 17:6. Also, Sarah's 17.16. This is repeated to Judah that in Genesis 49.10, Judah, his descendant, Shiloh coming from Judah, he would be a king and to him would be the obedience of the peoples. The obedience of the peoples. That is, they would have the obedience of faith as it says in Romans 1, 1, 5, and in Romans 16, 25 to 27, the obedience of faith to the peoples of the, of the world. 
And specifically, the king would come from the line of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. Though there are earthly, temporary, lineal, genealogical fulfillments of this, that's true throughout the Old Testament. And this culminates in Matthew 1, verse 1, where Christ is called the son of Abraham and son of David. But it is particularly in the lineage of David that this eternal promise is highlighted. In the lineage of David. That's why in the New Testament, Christ is repeatedly called the son of David. In Revelation 5.5, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the offspring of David. David knew this. And so did all the prophets after David. David knew it in 1000 BC. And so did Isaiah, Micah, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Micah 5, verse 2. Zechariah 9.9, so forth. They all knew this, starting with David. I'd like to prove it from David. We know in 2 Samuel 7 that this passage is known as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. David was promised that he would have a son on the throne forever. Forever. It says... In 7.13, his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, though it has a physical and bloodline promise, that bloodline, it has to culminate and then be eternal in Jesus Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem of the offspring of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse, the whole chapter, 1 to 25. Matthew 2, 6 quotes Micah 5, 2. Matthew 2, 6 quotes Micah 5, 2. And Luke chapters 1 and 2 highlight this fact, all of Luke 1 and 2, highlight this fact that the Christ was to be born of David and would have an eternal kingdom. Back to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, David immediately understood because after God promised this to him, he prays this prayer in verses 18 to 29. 2 Samuel 7, 18-29. And this is a prayer full of gratitude. Full of gratitude that God would deign to have David's name associated with the eternal kingdom of Christ. How so? How do we know David understood it immediately in this way? 719. 7.19 And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. The distant future. And not because of David's goodness, verse 21, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. To let David know according to God's word, based on what's in God's own heart, according to his own decree and purpose. Now, verse 24. Verse 24. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Verse 25. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it, forever and do as you have spoken. 26, that your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord 
God of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. And then verse 29. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. David understood what God said. He knew that Christ would be born among his descendants. Now, who is this Christ, the coming Christ? He is just or righteous, it says in Zechariah 9.9. Just and endowed with salvation. He is righteous because he is completely righteous. It's not only that he is righteous, but he practices righteousness. He delivers righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. He is righteous in his character, and he gives or grants righteousness to us. Isaiah 11, 1 to 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Christ is the one who is righteous and he delivers righteousness. In the book of Isaiah also, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 59, 15 to 17, Isaiah 59, 15 to 17. After describing our sins and how hopelessly lost we are in sin, 59, 15, yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now, the Lord saw And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Christ is the one who is clothed with righteousness. That's why by faith we need His righteousness. Romans 4. That's why we need His righteousness. He is also endowed with salvation. Salvation resides in Him. He possesses it. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9. He has the salvation. We even saw that in Isaiah. He has salvation. He possesses salvation because he is the Savior. He is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, he's endowed with the salvation that he can grant to us by faith in him. Zechariah 9.9 calls him humble. We might say humble or lowly or gentle. He is humble in the sense of Isaiah 53. In his humility, he is silent before his shearers. In his humility, he is arrested. He is beaten and persecuted. He is tortured. And then he's impaled on a cross. He's humble and meek and gentle and mild in that sense. 
He's not a rabble-rouser. He's not a revolutionary. He, he is not an insurrectionist. He doesn't commit violence. But he receives the wrath of the people and ultimately the wrath of God. This humility is signified in that he is mounted on <coughs> the foal or the colt of a donkey. <clears throat> Why did he enter Jerusalem on a donkey or a young donkey, the colt or foal of a donkey, and not on a horse? In the land of Israel and in the chronology of the Old Testament, the people of Israel and even the kings and the judges of Israel, they first rode on donkeys, but then in the time of David and Solomon, when they were able to conquer and trade with surrounding nations, they acquired horses. Donkeys, kings would ride on donkeys if they didn't have horses, but horses are better for warfare than donkeys. However, the donkey would also signify lowliness or humility. It signified that. And this is why Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And also an unridden donkey, a young donkey. Because a young donkey is even less experienced, less knowledgeable of what to do in warfare or for any other purpose, even to carry a load. He rode on one of them, showing his innocence and his humility, his inexperience in things that have to deal with bloodshed, warfare, carrying loads. That's the way Christ was. Lastly, we see in verse 10 that God promises to cut off from Ephraim and Jerusalem or Judah warfare. He's going to cut it off. He cuts off chariot, horse, the bow of war. And instead he speaks peace. He cuts off warfare and speaks peace. Ephraim and Jerusalem are names for the northern kingdom or the ten tribes and the southern kingdom, that is Judah and Benjamin, the north and the south. In Hosea 11.12, Hosea also calls the north Ephraim and the south Judah or Jerusalem in 11.12 to 12 verse 2. This is what the prophets do. Ephraim was the largest, most numerous of the tribes, starting from Genesis chapter 48. Um, the thousands of Manasseh and the tens of thousands of Ephraim. So Ephraim is also in not only the physical nation, but the spiritual. In Jeremiah 31.9, God speaks of Ephraim in terms of endearment. Jeremiah 31 verse 9. Verse 9, he speaks of the remnant of Ephraim that way. We already saw in Isaiah 62.1-5 that God speaks of Jerusalem as his bride, as his redeemed. This is what God does to remove violence and warfare from us and produces peace. The ultimate peace he produces. This is the same as the book of Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. Where God says he's going to establish peace for the nations. We might begin at verse Micah 4, verses 1 to 5. We'll start at verse 1. And it will come about in the last days, which means the days of Christ, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, 
Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is fulfilled in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. We read in 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And 2.17, Ephesians 2.17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Quoting Isaiah 57.19. Isaiah 57.19. Well, here too, in Zechariah 9.10, he speaks peace to the nations. Peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the same as in Psalm 72, verse 8, which is also the whole of Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm, where it uses similar words of the dominion of Christ being from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Of the earth. We know this to be the case. It's clear in the New Testament that this gospel spreads to the whole world so that we are all reconciled and we make peace with one another and we put down our violence and ultimately have eternal peace in Christ. A messianic prophecy right here. In, in Zechariah chapter 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.